1967 was an explosive year for UFO reports. Point Pleasant, West Virginia was caught up in its famous flap that featured Mothman and various other phenomena that occurred in and around the Ohio Valley. 1967 included a number of now famous UFO incidents, such as the Malmstrom Air Force Base incident, in which the base's nuclear arsenal was disarmed. There was also an incident involving motorist Robert Richardson. While he was driving late one night, he came across a UFO in the middle of the road. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to stop the vehicle and came into contact with the UFO. He would have two curious encounters with the menacing men in black as well. America was not the only location to experience an influx of UFO activity. Our neighbors to the north, Canada, also experienced a rash of sightings during this time. In fact, two of the country's most famous cases would come from 1967. The first being the Falcon Lake incident, which we covered in a previous episode, and the subject of tonight's episode, the Shack Harbor Incident. Tonight, I'm joined by my good friend Zanger of the Zang This Podcast to unravel the mystery that is Canada's Roswell. My name is Rob Christofferson, and this is a special Patreon for All edition of the Our Strange Skies Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to this special edition of a Patreon for All, Our Strange Skies episode. I am your host, Rob Christofferson, and I'm joined today by my good friend, Zanger, from the Zang This Podcast. And today, we're going to bring you the Shag Harbor incident, something that we have been meaning to do for a long time. So, Zanger, how you doing, man? Yeah, baby, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. I, I was like, I'm going to do an Austin Powers impression, so rip the Band-Aid off quick for everyone, and I am doing great. It is an honor to join you in our strange skies. It is an honor to be here to talk some some weird UFO incidents Yeah, in man. Canada. <laughs> in Canada, going to a little further up north. So when I was first putting together this podcast... I remember very distinctly you said that if I ever did an episode about the Shag Harbor mm-hmm. incident that you wanted to be a part of it. So I did. We're here. I we're, did and we're we're here and I'm I am I'm excited to discuss this. Yes. I know this is one of your favorite cases, so I, I guess off the bat here, uh what is it about this case that really sticks out to you and, and makes it one of your favorites? It this case has always stuck out to me because I and it's strange that I went like today to kind of like you know brush up on some stuff you know do some last minute research and everything and I noticed there's not as much information as I thought there was on this out there like it's not as well known as I assumed it always was 
So that's one thing to where I, I'm kind of proud now that I'm, I'm a fan of a, I guess, what well, should be more well-known, in my opinion, UFO incident. And it's something to where the story is, it, it keeps getting weirder the, the further you go into the story. Like, it's something to where it starts out, of course, UFO sighting, and then slowly continues to grow into this, to this incident of, like, monumental proportions, in my opinion. Like, this is Canada's Roswell, and I feel like more people should be familiar with it. I would agree. It's definitely, not just in terms of, like, the tops of Canada's UFO sightings, mm-hmm. but, like, just in the amount of documentation in this case, the number of eyewitnesses, I think that it gets mischaracterized as Canada's Roswell. I would probably more accurately classify it as Canada's Kecksburg incident. Accurate. I, I You know what? I have been corrected. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the story of the Shag Harbor incident, it begins... At around 7.15 p.m., some three to 400 miles away from Nova Scotia, in the airspace over Quebec on October 4th, 1967, while cruising at 12,000 feet aboard a Canada Air DC-8 plane, Captain Pierre Charbonneau noticed a strange object flying along with his aircraft. Now, the object was orange, rectangular in shape, and flying at a higher altitude, but on the same heading as this plane. And it was trailed by a string of smaller lights, giving it a distinctly kite-like appearance. So, it's interesting that for the beginning of this incident, we start a little further away, but what we're going to find here is that this thing follows a trajectory, much like the Kecksburg incident did. You can almost trace this in a straight line, much like Kecksburg. Mm-hmm. Captain Charbonneau called it to the attention of his co-pilot, Robert Ralph, and they spent several minutes discussing what they were seeing, and it was immediately clear to both of them that it was not like anything they'd seen before. It wasn't an aircraft, and they had no experience with whatever this was. They continued to speculate until, at around 7.19 p.m., there was a large, what they called an explosion near the main object. The uh, explosion immediately turned, created this white spherical cloud, which then turned red, violet, and blue. Awestruck by what they were witnessing, they continued observing in stunned silence until two minutes later when a second, larger explosion occurred. As with the first, it turned into a spherical cloud before cycling through the color spectrum. Now, Captain Charbonneau believed that whatever was occurring with the objects would soon affect his own plane, so he prepared to switch off the autopilot and assume manual control and move himself a little further away from it. A reasonable thing to do, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's a smart thing to do. The only thing was that no shockwave ever hit the plane, um, which was odd. And uh, the explosion that they claimed to see, well, it was completely 100% silent. So, you know, it's just normal things that planes do, right? Yeah, silent explosions. Why not? 
Right. It, it's just, you know, I guess it's par for the course here. Immediately after the second explosion, uh, and this was at about 7.21, the trailing lights moved from their previous position behind the rectangular object and began to move around the object, giving Charbonneau and Ralph the impression of, like, fireflies darting around in the night. Mm-hmm. For several minutes, uh, the captain and the co-pilot observed the firefly lights move around the spheres, which were drifting east until the whole strange sight escaped their view. That is the beginning here. And what's interesting is that they submitted a full report, including drawings on the incident to Air Canada, but they chose to remain anonymous, and their names were only revealed later after Chris Stiles, one of the preeminent investigators on this case came forward with it but their report would actually make its way up into the government the canadian government and many of these reports would it's a weird place to start man it it is and this is something that in my like more recent research i've been kind of i i didn't know about this like Mm -hmm. And I I was kind of shocked by this because I was like, I didn't even know that there was, like, I figured it all, like, took place in Shag Harbor and all that area. But there's a, but like I said, I found this today and you're going over it as well. So it's definitely something that kind of, uh, it it's made the story, once again, even more to it than it made, made, made the legend of this crash more legendary. Yeah, it's given it more of a mythic level tone and Mm -hmm. it's only going to increase here because uh, realistically what you're getting with shag harbor incident is a series of ufo sightings that culminate in a ufo splashing down into the water and then you get some usos yes you do get some usos that's right uh some crazy stuff seen under the water and uh you know later on some stuff seen coming out of the water so the next sighting is over the town of uh, eastern passage uh along this trajectory and it's here that william tybalt and his brother are setting up a surveyor's transit which is a specialized tool that combines a tripod telescope and a spirit level to use for stargazing hmm yeah, like really fancy setup here. I dig it. I'm I'm down for that too. Hell yeah, man. So the Tybalt brothers were at uh, William's house on the outskirts of Canadian Naval Air Station Shearwater, preparing for, you know, a relaxed night of stargazing, as they had done many times before. William, who worked at Shearwater, was an employee of Ferry Aircraft an English company responsible for the design and construction of many modern aircraft. Eastern Passage itself sits at the entrance to Halifax Harbor, one of the best natural deep water harbors on the Atlantic coast. It has been used for centuries, first by the Mi'kmaq and then by European settlers. It's a strategic position close to the Great Circle Route to and from Europe, and it's used like every single day. It's people like many Nova Scotians make their living on the water. Many of these towns around Shag Harbor are fishing villages, Mm -hmm. and a lot of them still are today. So at 7.51, as he was gazing upwards, William caught sight of something flying at an extremely high level. He could clearly see two dim white lights, followed by a larger, brighter light, 
flying from the northeast to the southwest, tracking the coast and moving in the direction of Shag Harbor. The brothers watched as the objects moved across the sky for about five minutes until they were out of view. And of course, William knew aircraft, and he knew everything that flew around in the skies. He also knew that what he and his brother were witnessing, as they each took turns looking through the surveyor's transit, it was very unusual for the airspace here. And it wasn't a meteor entering the atmosphere. They noted that there was no trail on it or anything. Likewise, these brothers reported their sighting to Shearwater. They were later interviewed by the base commander and were asked to estimate the altitude, and William speculated that the object was flying at about 50,000 to 100,000 feet. And when asked what he thought they were, he said that he didn't know, but he was certain that they weren't aircraft. So, that's interesting. You got... Someone who's trained to work on aircraft, and it's not within their realm of experience. Well, that's the other funny thing. These people's, like, their hobby is stargazing and stuff, too. So you think that they would very instantly be like, that's not something we normally see, too. So I, I kind of definitely think that that's interesting as well, is the fact that their hobby was stargazing. And that, I mean, they're definitely out. They would know what's where. Uh, stuff like an excuse of, oh, well, you just saw Venus or, you know, that was actually Jupiter is definitely not something that's going to come up with them because I'm sure they would pretty easily know what's what in this night sky at this time. Yeah, 100%. What we're all going to find as this sighting goes along is that most of these witnesses are trained observers in some way or another. Uh, you got many RCMP officers, you've got experienced pilots, as we've seen one uh, encountering them in the air, another one on the ground. So it adds to the validity of this event in many ways. Mm-hmm. The UFO activity continues to the southwest, down the zigzagging coast, roughly 46 miles, as the crow flies to Mahone Bay. 12-year-old Daryl Dory his older sister Annette and their mother are outside their home near the shore. Above them, an orange ball of light, trailed by several smaller lights, moves through the night sky, something a little bit similar to what Charbonneau and Robert Ralph have seen. It's got that kite-like tail on it. And as they watch the object, the smaller lights appear to slowly merge with the larger one though from their vantage point, they could not tell if that was because the smaller lights had moved behind the larger object or if it was because they truly had merged with it, but they were transfixed by it. And in the blink of an eye, that singular object was gone, just disappeared. With the sighting seemingly over, Mrs. Dory moved the children inside, and it was a school night. You got to get those kitties in there, man. (laughs) They got school in the morning? We're not, no, we're not going to be up late with this. As they were going in, the youngest one shouted and pointed to the sky, where before there was a slow moving line of objects. Now there was a single object darting furtively about the sky in quick and seemingly impossible maneuvers. The three watched in stunned amazement until the object moved quickly out to sea. So... Again, we're going in a straight line, and it's moving pretty dang quick. 
So, hold on, I'm just, let, let me just make sure I'm getting this right, because I'm actually Google Earthing this as we go. So it is moving on a trajectory of what looks to be from, I mean, towards the southwest, southwest as it goes along the coastline, basically. Mm-hmm, right. So just, just to give anyone at home and listening just kind of a mental idea, it is basically, looks like it's skimming along the Nova Scotian coast. That is... Absolutely correct, and I will be posting a... There's a couple of great maps that shows the trajectory of this object as it darts across Canada. At one point, back when Charbonneau uh, was looking at it, it was kind of close to the New York-Vermont border, but it follows that perfectly. And uh, interestingly enough, young Daryl was an aircraft enthusiast. <laughs> And and he had attended numerous air shows. He knew planes, and he knew their movement. And this object amazed him. He had never seen anything like it before or since. The object so occupied his mind that he stayed up late to write a letter about what he had seen to the commander of nearby Canadian Forces Base Greenwood, located approximately 45 miles away on the opposite side of the Nova Scotia Peninsula. That's right. This kid was so amazed by what he saw, he was intrigued to write a letter to, to an Air Force base. So, have have you ever been intrigued enough to write a letter to your base commander? And by nope. that, I mean just a local base commander. Not like you're, like, if you're in the military, like, your boss, but just just a random military guy. No, I no, no way. Not I feel happening. one day I'll 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 get there, but not right now. <laughs> Do you have faith in your base commander that he will take your sighting seriously? Um, I mean, I am from I am from Virginia. We're really close to West Virginia, and I'm not trying to say that there's moonshine around, but I'm pretty sure they'll just be like, "Up, oh, someone got into the shine." You know, I think it's it just comes with the territory, man. It does. It just comes with the territory. <laughs> <laughs> we're moving on, and, and we're going to get a sighting over uh, from the crew of a ship now. And this is the MV Nickerson, and the captain, his name is Captain Mercy, and his crew. It's a modern fishing vessel at the time, equipped with the latest technology, including onboard radar to assist in navigation just the best stuff available just after sunset in the glow of twilight four brilliant red lights became visible just above the water the crew like so many others that evening stopped what they were doing and stood on the deck watching the lights in awe of the strange sight they were witnessing captain mercy Concerned for the safety of his crew as the ship moved through the waves, ordered them to get below deck. Captain Mercy could see the objects on the ship's radar holding a steady position just above the water, roughly six miles apart and 16 miles northeast. Whatever the lights were, he knew that they were not a hallucination, that they were physical objects. These waters are close to several large military bases and frequently used for military exercises, often without any warning to local fishermen, just like, you know, like any base, you know, mm -hmm. they, they do whatever and they're not going to tell you crap. So They don't need your permission to be no. weird out there. No, they, they do what they want. Concerned that what he might be seeing was a military exercise, Captain Mercy radioed the Coast Guard and the Halifax Harbor Master to inquire 
only to be told that there were no exercises being conducted that evening. And would they tell you anyway? Probably no. not. But Captain Mercy gave the lights a wide berth, out of concern for the safety of his ship and crew. And as he returned to the ship's pilot house, the radio operator informed him that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police were being inundated with reports of unidentified flying objects up and down the coast from Halifax to Yarmouth. The RCMP was eager to hear from Captain Mercy as well. They formally requested that, upon his return to shore, that he give them a formal statement. A few miles south of the Dory family sighting that we mentioned earlier, Will Eisner, a professional photographer on Mason's Beach in... I love this uh, cove here. Puffy Cup Cove. (laughs) (laughs) I I just want to know how some places got their names and you know what this this ranks at the top of the list i'm just assuming there was some english vessel at some point sitting there and someone was looking for their puffy cup and and well i think we know what happened next (laughs) the thing is it's like this is so such a canadian name like there's there's a few other canadian names i think that pop up in this story too so yeah but like it's so like defenseless (laughs) <laughs> that you, you just you just love it. <laughs> Will Eisner is with two of his friends, Raymond Hiltz and St. Clair Croft. One of Will's schooners was beyond repair and in need of disposal. Earlier on the high tide, Will and his friends sailed the ship as close to shore as possible. And now that the tide had gone out, the ship was basically beached. But they had a plan to douse it in fuel, and they were going to set that thing ablaze. <laughs> and with any and with any remaining bits of wood, they figured it'd just be carried out uh, in the in, in the water. <laughs> um, Canada logic. Yeah, I mean, it's it's infallible. I'll give them that. <laughs> They found that no matter how much fuel they put on the thing, it just wouldn't catch because it was just so wet at the time. But Will and his friends were basically forced to haul driftwood to the ship and use it as kindling. Between 10.30 and 11 p.m., Will noticed a set of three motionless lights in a triangle pattern in the western sky, inland from where he was standing. Mm -hmm. The lights stood out clearly against the backdrop of the stars in the darkness, Two lights were amber, and the last a brilliant blue. Will pointed the lights out to his friends, but they weren't particularly interested. Lame friends. <laughs> Will, however, decided that whatever was happening was unusual, and he wanted to document it. He retrieved his camera from the car, and set his camera down on a rock in order to capture a time-lapse photo. He flipped open the shutter, left the camera, and returned five minutes later to... Retrieve it. We'll be including that photo in with this post. It's kind of uninteresting. It's just a long exposure photo of like a streaky light that, you know, it's really just kind of uninteresting. It made. Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, I mean, not. Sorry, I was. I was reading something while thinking at the same time. I was reading Shag Harbor and thinking at the same time. A uh, long exposure photos are not something that, um,. If done correctly, they are amazing. If done with a five, if if it was seriously open for five minutes, I'm surprised it wasn't beyond overexposed. To be honest, right. but right, it's it. I mean, it's interesting, but it's hard to get like exactly what am I looking at here? Because it could be 
a lot of different things, and that's and that's the problem with this photo, in my opinion. Yeah, streaky light against a black background. What the heck's that good for? But I give them props, I guess. For I mean, trying. Yeah, at least for thinking in the foresight to at least try to do some. I mean, do something about it. I, I'll give them that. I mean, it's no um. Why am I forgetting the Gulf Breeze? <laughs> um ufo guy oh ed, ed walters yeah it's it's no ed walters but i mean it's at least a good shot you know at least he seems a little more sincere than ed walters i'll give him that i think anyone's more sincere than ed walters <laughs> that is uh that is true that is true um he watched the lights for several more minutes before going back to the bonfire he promptly developed these photos, but he put them in a safe where they just sat for years. <laughs> you, you know, I, I I put many things in safe safes. Um, UFO photos definitely high up there on my list. Actually, if I ever capture any on my phone, that's the first thing I'm going to do is just grab my phone, toss it in a safe, and then just lock it. That's a good idea. You should probably go to like a, a photo center, plug your phone in, at least get one of them printed to go along with the phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't be too careful these days, especially you if you got you, if you got the men in black just you know hounding your doorstep. Then you want to have a little more security. You need backups. Yes, you do. But yeah. no, I. I mean, it's great that that like I said. A lot of this stuff that, that, that I've seen here and that we're going over is new information to me from this story. So this is definitely more interesting than, than, than the original when I said, I want to do this. I didn't know about a lot of this stuff. So this is definitely very interesting to me as somebody who has enjoyed this. I did not know that it went this deep. Oh, it goes and, deep. And, yeah, I was about to say, and it's going to go deeper. Oh, it's 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 going to get deeper, and, and we're going to get to Shag Harbor here real soon. One of the most important sightings and one of the most important witnesses to this is Chris Stiles himself. And Chris Stiles has been the lead on the Shag Harbor incident for the last uh, 50 years. He was like 12 years old at the time. Mm-hmm. And from his bedroom window, he saw a disc-shaped object, which is interesting. Because that's uh, counterintuitive to everything that's been reported up until this point. Because it's always right. been that, like, I want to say box, but that rectangular shape. Yep. This object, it was glowing orange, and he described it as the color of iron heated in a forge. It was moving slowly over the water of Halifax Harbor and was immediately distinct from the normal lights of ships and buoys that dot the harbor. He was instantly captivated by what he saw. Uh, The object slowly drifted up the harbor and Stiles watched it for a time through his grandfather's field glasses. As it moved, Stiles realized that he was going to lose sight of it behind the buildings between his home and the waterfront And gripped by an overpowering sense of curiosity and wonder, he bolted out of the house, his father's orders to stay inside ringing in his ears as he sprinted to the waterfront. That's right. We're going out there, folks. We got to be out in the front lines here. And upon reaching the water... uh, I was going to say, definitely a scene ripped right out of a Steven Spielberg movie. Oh, yeah. Man, this is... 
definitely cinematic. I'm feeling it. I'm here for it. Yeah. And upon reaching the waterfront, he found himself in awe at the size of the object, which he estimated to be about 50 to 60 feet in diameter. His youthful bravado gave way (laughs) to apprehension as he realized just how close he was to the object. No more than 75 to 100 feet. He watched it slowly move along the shoreline until fear overtook him, and he ran back inside his house. Although his father would not believe him when he breathlessly relayed what he had seen, the front page of the Halifax Chronicle Herald three days later would vindicate Chris and his account. The paper would relay the story of an unnamed woman on her way home from work who sighted a bright, vivid object with an orange hue and a halo around the circumference of the object at the Halifax Dartmouth Ferry Landing. She observed it visually through binoculars and saw that it wasn't a star. I was going to say, if it's a star, it's it's a pretty low star and it's moving. It shouldn't do that. So, so we've got a UFO being sighted by a UW. Yep. Yep. Low-hanging fruit, people. I go for it often. <laughs> <laughs> like all these other witnesses, this particular woman felt compelled to tell her story, but didn't want the publicity or perhaps the notoriety that comes with the public telling of stories like this. Now, this was 67. Yes. So this is still a time frame where I think it's more of... If you're known as you'll you'll be known as that that guy the the, the UFO people mm-hmm. and stuff. So I think that that is the the stigma still there. I think with a lot of people during this time in um of course history and of course you know you, ufology it's it's still frowned upon to be even though as we're gonna see there's a ton of people that are involved in this. So I don't think you would be too alone to to blurt this out or say some, or just at least give like a first name or, I mean, also how hard is it to make up a name people? Come on. Yeah. No, (laughs) it's, uh, even today the stigma still exists. Although I think a lot of people are more willing to come forward than Mm -hmm. ever. But, um, yeah, I I can, I can see that. Especially, I think a UFO sighting could ruin your reputation a lot more in 1967 than it can now. Yeah. I mean, look, Billy Meyer still makes money, I assume. <laughs> Not a whole hell of a lot, but, you know, there's somebody advocating for him, Michael Horn. But, but... <laughs> it's Sorry. fun. I wasn't expecting a Billy Myers reference. No, nobody expects Billy Meyer. You don't expect Billy Meyer, the the name, to come out, but it, it's fun. I didn't expect Ed Walters to come out of here, but it, oh. it's great because it reminds me of the time when I covered Ed Walters and and his shady ass. Mm, so, very shady. Very shady. Very shady. Um, I'm going to say good model builder. Good model builder. I, I will say this. I, I am under – I know this isn't, this isn't the time or place for this, but you know what? One is I'm under the opinion that I would like to think he saw something. Mm-hmm. And then did his darndest to recreate it. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I, I just feel like that's the poetic justice of that story is he legitimately saw something, but then tried to recreate it and completely ruined the situation for himself. Yeah, he made it 100 times worse and ultimately had to change his name. 
And you know what? I really, I'm, I'm sure if I look on the internet, I could find it. I would really love to build the Ed Walters model, like you, like, like have like a model kit you can build. Like you know, they yeah, I... the um the the World War Two Nazi UFO one. Oh yeah, the yeah. the Nazi Bell. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Have have that in a model form, but it's the Ed Walters UFO. Put it together. You have to have to paint it and everything. Get a ton of that model would be. Glue. A... That would be, oh man, um, we the toy companies get at us right now. Yes, if any of you are listening, you need to. Uh, we we will um, consultant fees were were reasonable, wouldn't you say? I I'd say just send me just send me a few so I can have them to build. I I don't want profit. I just want to, you know what? Do an entire line of iconic UFO sighting like models. It'd be great. Yeah, I I'm here for it. And then, you know, what if you get frustrated and throw it on the ground? Guess what? You have the Roswell crash UFO model right there. Any of them, you just throw it on the ground. And guess what? It's the Roswell UFO now. Yep. Uh, I mean, if you, you could have the Kecksburg one, it's it looks pretty much like a bullet. It, yeah. It's nice. It's cool looking. As we as I've said, this sighting, we're, we're seeing a bunch of people see this as it makes its way to Shag Harbor. And... We move now to the eastern shore of Nova Scotia, just before 11 p.m. An RCMP constable and three game wardens were returning from a stakeout of a group of trails near Weymouth, hoping to catch deer poachers. When they would have their own sighting, the first heard what they believed to be a rifle shot, and rolling down their windows expected to find poachers. They instead observed through the windshield an orange-colored light like a glowing ball of fire to the south, just above the tree line and moving slowly southwards at a height of no more than 200 to 300 feet. They exited the car to get a better look at it and observed it for some time before it moved away. It reminded them of a candle flame with a distinct corona around an inner object, And unlike other previous observations, the object was giving off what appeared to be sparks as it moved slowly to the south in the direction of Shag Harbor. And this one was, beyond the gunshot sound, was completely silent. So, they, the whole glowing, I I think that matches up with the previous sighting we went over of the, you know, looks like a metal from a forge. Yeah. So... So like I said, there, there's elements of this that, that are kind of continuously going, like the shape, some of the colors, some of the stuff mentioned. But I do find this interesting. So we're at about what? You said um, we're, we're at about 11 p.m.-ish. Yep. And this yep. whole thing started around 7. So this has been going on for a while now. Yeah, just uh, just about four hours. So if I, I'm, I'm not I'm not jumping ahead... I'm trying to jump ahead, but if there's a, oh, well, they were just seeing, like, a shooting star or something, that is a extremely slow-moving shooting star, then, or meteor, or whatever you could possibly think it is. So, I'm nixing that right now for my my, um, conclusions. I would say that, yeah, meteors don't do that. They don't hang around for four hours. They (laughs) they just go, and, like, you know what? They burn up in the atmosphere. That's generally what happens. But... No, didn't happen here. 
Crying shame, man. Crying mm-hmm. shame. I, I hate it when meteors don't act like meteors. <laughs> when they when they're just going really slow, honking their horn, they're really angry that that they can't just get get up to the speed limit that they're supposed yeah. to be at. Yeah, um, I want to know how they can pump those brakes because those got to be <laughs> the best brake system I've ever seen. You thought ABS was amazing. What they're working with is ten times better. So <laughs> now we actually get into Shag Harbor itself, and uh, this is around eleven twenty p.m. And Norm Smith and David Kendricks are driving west towards Shag Harbor in an area known as Bear Point. And while on the road, Smith and then Kendricks witnessed multiple stationary lights in the sky glowing in an odd dull red to orange color, pointed at a 45-degree angle towards the water. Over the course of several minutes, as they navigated the winding coastal road, they would continually lose sight of the lights, then catch up with them, until finally losing sight of them as the road entered a grove of trees." The incident disturbed Norm, and to cope, he just continued on with what he had planned. He dropped Kendricks off and then returned home himself before he would actually just go out later and commandeer a boat. But um, As he still you do. had to. Yeah, he, he. It's what you do in small coastal towns, I guess. Many of the residents of Shag Harbor, including Norm, like I've said, were fishermen. Norm wasn't the only one on the road that night, though. Like Norm, Lori Wickens is driving some friends home when he sees four lights flashing on and off in sequence, slowly descending towards the water off Shag Harbor. Lori and his passengers were not sure what they were witnessing, but they knew it was important. Like, every single eyewitness here, like, either they know air traffic so damn well that they can spot something that just does not match what's happening. Or uh, these are just highly intelligent people. And I would probably say a little bit of both here. Uh, Column A, column B, definitely. Definitely in this situation. Yep. But not knowing what else to do, Lori attempts to keep the object in sight, which the winding road and the descent of the object were not uh, making it easy for him. He loses sight of the object as it goes beneath the tree line, towards the water. Shortly thereafter, he experiences something that only Constable Andrew and the game wardens had yet reported, sound. Lori reported that he heard a whistling noise, then a whoosh and a bang with a bright flash as the object apparently hit the water. I, I, was, I was about to say that, but before you said they hit the water, as you were describing that, I'm like, that sounds like something like, either kind of slowly going into the water or hitting the water. And then if it is, has been hot, if it has something on it, that's like the exact sounds I would think of. So guess we're, we're still on the mark for some of this. Like, like uh, dots are lining up. Stuff is matching up here in this story mm-hmm. for me. So yeah. Continue. As the car rounded a turn and climbed a small rise, they came into full view of the ocean From their vantage point, they could see that the object was a white color and floating in the ocean, some 200 to 300 yards offshore. It was bobbing on the waves and glowed a pale yellow. They watched it drift in the water for several minutes before, concerned that it might be a downed airliner, left to find a phone to call the police. Shag Harbor was then, as it is now, a small town, 
just one police officer was on duty that night. Corporal Victor Werbecki. (laughs) (laughs) That night, he was responsible for both answering emergency calls and responding to them. In rapid succession, Corporal Werbecki took roughly a dozen phone calls from concerned citizens who had seen something go into the water off Shag Harbor. Most believed it was an airliner, and some of them, like Lori Wickens, were simply not sure of what they had seen. All of the calls were consistent, though. Lights into the water of Shag Harbor. During a lull in reports, Corporal Rebecca reached out to the only other law enforcement officials in the area, RCMP Constables Ron O'Brien and Ron Pond. The most Canadian name I can think of, <laughs> Ron Pond. <laughs> I, 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 the, the, um, pilot that, that began this story also is a very Canadian name too, but yes, Ron Pond is definitely (laughs) uber Canadian. We have on Golden Pond. I want to know, I want on Ron Pond. (laughs) (laughs) The law enforcement officers weren't sure what was happening, but, uh, we're certain something did happen. So they responded pretty quickly. As word of a crashed aircraft in the water spread, locals converged on the docks, as did local law enforcement. Norm Smith, along with more than a dozen other locals, looked at an object some 60 feet across, bobbing in the water about a half mile offshore now. It was still luminous, but the light grew dimmer by the second as the object began sinking under the water. The waters of the North Atlantic are dark and deep and cold. Those fishermen know from experience that anyone in those frigid waters may not have time to wait for the Coast Guard to arrive. And so, in tradition, going back to time immemorial, upon hearing that there were people in trouble in the water, the locals go into their boats and went out to help. So, Corporal Rubicki and Norm Smith aboard Norm's uncle's fishing boat, the Joan Priscilla, expected (laughs) to find debris hoped to find survivors and possibly bodies. But when they reached the site of impact, all they found was bubbling water and a half-mile-long patch of thick yellow foam some 80 feet wide and three inches thick floating on top of the water. It brought with it a distinct smell of sulfur. And the plot thickens. Mm. Well, much and like the water did. Yes, and it smells terrible. Ugh. By 12.30 a.m., a little more than an hour after the object went into the water, there were six fishing boats and a Coast Guard cutter searching the area for survivors of what they still believed to be a crashed airliner. As the night went on, however, no debris or bodies were found, and no aircraft was reported missing. It became clear to all involved that what had crashed into the waters off Shag Harbor was most certainly not an airliner. By the next morning, officials at the Coast Guard were already referring to it as a UFO. That's right. And later that day, the local fishermen, as well as the Coast Guard, would call off the search. All throughout October 5th, news of the incident was spread beyond Nova Scotia, from the RCMP to the government and the military. Everyone was hearing about this dang object. On October 6th, the Royal Canadian Navy's Fleet Diving Unit arrived on scene and immediately began diving at the spot where bubbling water and yellow foam had been sighted 36 hours before. Initially, four divers were present, which increased to seven by October 8th, before the search was called off on the 9th. 
they had at least officially found nothing, though at least one local reported that they had pulled up metal fragments that looked like aluminum. Oh, that's right, folks. We got metal alloys here. Yeah. Getting... I mean, that's what we look forward to, isn't it? I de- de- unexplain. Well, yeah, definitely unexplainable metal shavings. I guess metal pieces. I I mean, Tom DeLonge's paying thirty thirty five thousand dollars for him these days. So I'm wondering how much they were going for back in the day. I I just okay. Didn't like something come out recently. I'm, I I keep my finger on the pulse of this stuff, but I sometimes miss a certain heartbeat that goes through it. Didn't something come out that one of the pieces of stuff he like had was like completely worthless? Or am I just imagining that in my head? There are uh, some people that have speculated that it's uh, the byproduct of a certain chemical process. Hmm. Interesting. So I don't know. We'll we'll uh, we'll never see because the government has their hands on it. I guess. But I thought we were at this whole disclaimer. You know what? I'll, I'll get to that conversation later. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Nova Scotia, in addition to being the fastest sea route from Europe to North America, is also home to the headquarters of what was, at the time, one of the most closely held secrets of the Cold War and their military technology. A vast array of sensors designed to track Soviet submarines as they moved about the North Atlantic. In the days following the October 4th incident, members of the Canadian Navy's Fleet Diving Unit explored the water off of Government's Point, some 25-plus miles from Shag Harbor. A diver using the pseudonym Harry confirmed that not only was there an intact object on the ocean floor, but they brought pieces of it up. This... However, this is directly contradicted by government documents, which insist that none uh, of the dives during the search resulted in the recovery of any materials. And Harry is a pseudonym. We don't know who Harry really is. There is, however, reason to doubt the official story. Harry's claims have at least circumstantial corroboration from several sources. A man by the name of Jim, again, a pseudonym, was an expert in aircraft identification with the Royal Canadian Air Force at the time in 1967. With the smallest piece of an aircraft, even as little as nuts and bolts, Jim can determine what kind of aircraft the parts came from. He was that damn good. Jim had been told that the mission for the ships was to search for a Soviet submarine which came too close to shore. Why there would be an expert in aircraft identification participating in a search for a downed submarine puzzled him greatly. Bum bum! The plot thickens. Jim's first indication that something strange was happening comes from a familiar source. Harry, who we mentioned previously, was on the same ship as Jim, and Harry was upset by the forced silence on the ship. While eating supper... (laughs) Jim overheard an argument between Harry and one of his superior officers. Harry was insistent that what they were diving on was not a submarine and not from the Soviet Union, and that they should just acknowledge it for what it is. Exactly what it is, however, is left unspoken. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where we're at here. The heavy presence of military in the area is confirmed by several civilian sources as well. 
Though there are numerous military bases in the area, and despite the name itself, the land of Government Point is not, in fact, owned by the government. Public roads wind through the area, and numerous locals have property there. Starting on the night of October 4th, and continuing for several days, locals reported that the military had set up roadblocks on the entrances and exits to Government Point. Their purpose was never explained, and they disappeared just as quickly as they appeared roughly a week later. However, the presence of military roadblocks near a base is not exactly all that uncommon. But there are other factors which may prove Harry and Jim's stories. And I'm going to put it may in quotes, because, you know, this, this is where we're at on this. We're in conspiracy territory now. Oh, man, I love being in this territory. Anything's yeah. free game now. Oh, yeah, it is. So shortly after midnight on October 4th, Barry Crowell and his colleague Brenton Reynolds were switching shifts as light keepers for the lighthouse at Cape Roseway when a series of military flares exploded overhead, illuminating the beach and area immediately offshore. As Crowell and Reynolds recovered from their surprise, they noticed a large inflatable boat being paddled toward the island. Recognizing that the boat was heading for an area of barely submerged rocks, the two keepers rushed towards the beach, shouting warnings as they anticipated the craft would overturn on the shoals. They were proven correct. <laughs> and as they reached the beach, the craft overturned, spilling the paddling men into the water, though fortunately they were very near the shore at the time. I just imagine, like, it, it is, it's, it's like they fall off the boat and they're, like, in, like, barely ankle-high water. Yeah, yeah. And and one of them's like uh pretty confident that he's going to drown. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That exact joke. Yep. Um as the men swam ashore, Crowell and Reynolds helped them from the water, scarcely believing what they were seeing. Crowell was briefly concerned that they were invading Russians, but that concern evaporated when he heard the men speak English, though with a British accent. The men informed them that they were conducting a drill, the objective of which was the seizure of the lighthouse. So, the, the thing that you're trying to seize, you needed help from the lightkeepers in order to do that. Uh. Uh, Barry assumed that they were working with the Canadian military, but could never get a good answer about exactly what part of the military they were with. Not wanting to start trouble, the uh, keepers complied with the exercise, and the men stayed on the island for several days, fulfilling their objective to seize the lighthouse, after which they left the island via helicopter. <laughs> I, I just imagine it's, it's, um, it's the, like, fall of Saigon as, as they leave, like, picture yeah. to where it's like a helicopter taking off, and... It's just no one's there, though, but they're acting like it's the most dramatic like, exit they could possibly make. Yep. Also, um, if you ever are in question of if somebody is with the Canadian military or not, are they riding a moose? If yes, they are probably <laughs> with the Canadian military. If they're wearing a bright red uniform, <laughs> you can pretty much damn well guarantee it. The men in red. <laughs> <laughs> That's who you get. That's who knocks down. That's who's going to knock down your doors, people. The men in the men red. In red. 
Officially, the military states they found nothing in the water. Unofficially, though, the military contemporaneously told personnel that they were searching for a downed Russian submarine. So the story was conflicting all over the damn place. But three years later, in 1970, a man named Earl, again, another pseudonym, because we can't use real names here. I said, how hard is it to come up with a name? Apparently, these guys figured it out. I don't know. Like, g- give me a last name, please. I, Earl's not going to do it. Like Earl th- Hammonshocker. Yeah, I mean, uh, if if we're talking about Earl, uh, all I'm going to be able to think about is that Dixie Chick song where some... Uh, oh, yeah, the, the kill the husband or something. It's the... Yeah, the husband was killed by the wife because he was an abusive piece of shit. So, you know, now that's what I'm going to think about Earl here. He was an abusive piece of shit, but I'll try not to. I'm going to put that aside. I'm going to put it aside for now. Uh, he was a weapons technician for the Canadian Navy and was on duty at Cape Sable Island. Looking out over the ocean, he sees a collective of orange-colored objects. He knows they're being tracked on radar and radar... De- and later discloses to his superior about what he had seen. The superior officer disclosed to Earl that sites like those were quite common, and adds that on the night of October 4th, NORAD tracked an object entering Earth's atmosphere over Siberia, proceeding from there to the east coast of Canada, then down to Shag Harbor, where it entered the waters off the North Atlantic. During this time... It was moving at roughly 4,400 miles per hour, roughly Mach 10, a speed that no aircraft could then or now achieve, unless it's, you know, uh, part of Space Force, but I don't know anything about that. <laughs> None of us know anything about sp- Space Force. I don't think no. Space Force knows anything about Space Force. No, it's as it's confused as the people in this story. <laughs> you want us to do what? I don't think we can do that. No, 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 not at all. Um, and before uh, it slowed down, it, it slowed down before entering the water, which which is kind of interesting because that was something that hadn't been reported before. The object entered the water just as it had been seen by the residents of Shag Harbor, but did not sink to the bottom. Instead, it was able to move under its own power up the coast to Government Point near Shelburne, where it came to rest on the bottom of the ocean. The object came to rest directly on top of one of the feeds of the submarine tracking facility at Shelburne. So we're conveniently tying loose ends here. Uh, the ship carrying Jim and Harry, along with several other American and Canadian ships, photographed and recorded sounds of not one, but two objects on the ocean floor over the course of seven days before the ships were ordered out of the area and back to normal operations. On October 4th, according to an intelligence officer with the RCAF named Terry, again, no last name, his routine training was interrupted and his squadron was ordered to fly uh, missions up and down the east coast of Nova Scotia, dropping sonar buoys in the water. This mission was conducted under layers of secrecy as well. So, we have that going on. The final incident is going to be witnessed by the Cameron family. And this was uh, on October 11th. Lachland, his wife Lorraine, their daughter Luella, his brother Havelock. Oh my god, Havelock, man. 
I feel what sorry for that guy. Yeah, I know. His wife's name is Brenda, so that kind of normals it out there. They saw mysterious lights that have an air of familiarity. The family at first sighted a series of six bright red lights running horizontally for roughly 55 to 60 feet from end to end, flying at an altitude of 500 to 600 feet, less than a mile offshore. The stunned family watched the lights for several minutes until they abruptly disappeared. Thinking the sighting was over, they discussed among themselves what they had seen. A short time later, lights would again be sighted, but this time there were only four at 35 degree angle from the horizon. The lights then began to slowly descend toward the water, flashing in sequence and changing from red to yellow to orange over the course of 15 minutes before abruptly disappearing again. The family would see the lights again for a third and final time, off Woods Harbor about an hour later. This time they appeared as a string of yellow lights and were moving at an incredible speed, faster than any aircraft, until they disappeared into the sky to the northwest. The next day the naval operations off Government Point would cease, as would sonar buoy dropping operations. And thus concludes... The Shag Harbor incident, as we know it. Dun, dun, dun. So, Sanger, what do you think happened here? Okay. So, I'm trying not to make a joke. Okay. If if Russian plane crashes, it's submarine now? I guess? Is that how how it logically works? I I guess. But at the same time, I'm like, I... uh, so, just just to get all the facts together, real quick, just 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 to lay everything out here, we have a object of some variety mm-hmm. crashes into the water after being basically sighted up and down the entire coast of Nova Scotia. Basically, yeah, pretty much. That's that's pretty accurate. Produces a ton of yellow foam and a sulfur smell. Mm-hmm. A diving crew goes down when it's in the Shag Harbor area, correct? Yeah. And basically reports back, quote-unquote, that there was nothing there, quote-unquote. Yep. Then we have a possible second object come and help take the first object away and then is basically tracked going away and then leaving the water at some point as well. Yeah. After, I think, about a week, isn't it? About a week of time? Yep. So, let's go over the normal culprits here. Um, Meteor, as we already said, no. No way. There's no no freaking way. Um, A Russian plane, but then how would it move under the water as well? Right. Right. Because you're talking about something that allegedly moved moved 26 miles away. Yes. Um, I mean, if the plane crashed and a submarine was there, went to go retrieve something, that's one thing. But both objects supposedly moved. Mm-hmm. So that's nixing that. Um, to the best of my knowledge, I am not a military expert. And I think if I remember correctly, you're not a military expert. Nope. But I don't think there's anything 
capable yet or has been capable of both in-air and submerged, like, being able to do both. So, no. like, like easily go from one to the other very quickly. I think the only thing that could really do that is, like, a maybe, like, a missile. Yeah. That's about it. I mean, or... Okay. Crash... A crashing space probe of some sort. Once mm-hmm. again... Yeah. The longevity of the sightings nixes that, in my opinion. Yeah, because one of the theories I think that Chris Rutkowski put forward is that it was a film canister from a... I don't know if it was like a balloon or a satellite that was uh, taking photos of like Russian uh, bases and stuff like that. I, I just can't see that one, though. Like that's That, that, that one just bothers me, because I'm like... I, it, it was cited for too long, and it's kind of one of those things to where, like, I feel like there would be a better explanation, like, that, that someone would have come out and said something, that it was some government-related thing, and then just leave it at that. But, so, but there's there there's no initial sighting of the second object until it gets there, too. Right. So, right. we have no clue where that came from. But it came there to, I'm assuming if we're going to go with the alien and we're going to go with a true, like, nuts and bolts UFO, it was, I guess, a tr- space AAA coming out to, to to lend a hand. I mean, that is probably the most logical thing at this point. Yes, or because or, I thought there was a report earlier of possibly two objects. Yes, there was, I think, one... The weird thing is, is like this isn't necessarily consistent. Some people are seeing one. Some people are seeing a group. Some people are seeing one object that has a tail of lights on it. It's it's not fully consistent, which is strange. In which I would say, like it, it's a little weirder than say the Kecksburg incident because the one defining feature of that uh, incident is the fact that it made a right-hand turn. Which stuff doesn't just do, like, right, randomly. Right, and um, in, in this case, I don't think anybody really saw this thing do any turns, really. It was mostly straight as can be, but... Again, the weirdness of the fact that it's not 100% consistent is something that's throwing me off, especially when you consider, like, Chris Stiles' report. Maybe that was a different object. Now, the the thing is, and this is kind of going to get into, like, me vaguely talking about disclosure and how I'm vaguely irritated with it, Yeah, is... The, the U.S. and Canada were both involved in this. More Canada than the U.S., but who knows. With with that, it could have been U.S. claiming to be Canada, all that conspiracy stuff, fun stuff there. Um, I would love to have them just reveal one of these cases. Like, give us all the files. Because them saying, oh, yeah, we have the Navy, or we, we were investigating these things, too. It's like, that's great but we know you've been doing this for years, so at least give us something. Like, that's disclosure to me, is revealing, here's everything we know about this sighting or this situation. And this one seems to have 
a lot going on that I would love to see like what they came up with or what they saw because apparently those divers allegedly saw something in the craft too. Right. Right. Allegedly. There's so many quotation fingers flying around people. You might want to duck. Right. And once you get post October 4th, the actual incident itself, there are a lot of questionable claims, but some of them seem to be consistent. Others, maybe not so much. But it, it only just adds to the legend of Shag Harbor. I just, I, I don't really know what to make of it. Well, I was just about to ask you, sir, what were your thoughts on Like, Like, what's, what's your conclusion? Cause, I mean, I, I guess to give my, like, conclusion on, like, I think something happened. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you what I can tell you what I don't think it is. I don't think it's a meteor landing yeah. or crashing or some space debris falling to earth. Cause I said, it's the, it's a lot of stuff, uh, an experimental, some experimental object. That's, I believe more possible. Mm-hmm. Like something to where like there was some experimental object that crashed, of course went under and then they sent a submarine or something in to retrieve it and pull it away. Mm-hmm. But then again, we get the lights going out later, which I'm like, I, it's the whole transition from water to air is something I don't think we have the capability of doing, minus, as you said, of course, missiles. But right, I, I, I mean, I said that, that that's why I find this one interesting is there's no good explanation for it because it's just kind of this like. Uh, I can explain elements of this, but I can't explain all of it. No, there's too many factors at play here before you even get to a craft that crashes into the water. I understand that during this time, it's a flat period for the United States, and realistically, two of Canada's most famous sightings comes from this year. Chag Harbor and the Falcon Lake incident, which is pretty fascinating. And, I mean, if you look at the map of the UFO sightings reported in the United States and Canada, a lot of them are coming from the northeast United States. The interesting thing about Canada is, like, it's not fully a flap year for them, like, You'll see, like, a few... Uh, they probably had maybe 20 to 25 reported UFO sightings that year. And that's mostly just because... Th- who are they going to report it to half the time? Like, you're going to have to report to Americans, more than likely. Because until Chris Rutkowski kind of showed up... And so there's some earlier Canadian UFO investigators that took up cases. Like, it was unlikely that cases would get reported. So... It's interesting to see where the heavy UFO activity was during this time, which we've got the Mothman flap happening, so there's a lot of stuff in the Ohio mm-hmm. Valley region. You've got other stuff happening in uh, the Northeast, in particular, mostly in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Virginia, West Virginia, Kentucky, and, and a little bit further north of that, too. But the inconsistencies with this case and the object that eventually crashed into the water, it just kind of boggles my mind. And this could be an issue with, like, 
the, the way that they're reported. And it's it, it could be the observer itself. Because maybe this thing is having problems and it's going through various forms of distress. And maybe, you know, with a craft like that, it doesn't malfunction the same way that uh, a normal airplane does. It's puzzling. It's fucking with my mind because I just can't pin it down to one thing or, or the other. I don't think it was a film canister just because no. <laughs> a, a, a film canister is not going to keep traveling for four damn hours. I, I said that's I, I almost want to say, is it a blimp? Right. Because at the same time, I don't think a plane could even travel. And that would, oh man, that would explain like the, the lack of sound. Yeah. Interesting. I didn't even put that together until I was saying it. So, I mean, that that's a possible. It could be some weird blimp thing they have. But once again, I, I mean, know. the only thing there is speed. I just it, it because like. I'm almost thinking that there's two different objects here. One that is malfunctioning and another one that is more stable, that is able to hover off the water. Uh, because in many cases, it seems like it's under decent intelligent control enough that it's able to maneuver just above the water. Mm -hmm. The reports are so drastically different in those cases, especially with Chris's style's report of seeing basically a flying saucer but that's the only way i think i can like justify this and especially if later on we're saying that because there are other uh military officers i believe american military officers and submarines that allegedly testified to tracking the, the object for a week under the water and then another one apparently came in and help this object out and they both ascended is pretty similar to what the Cameron family kind of witnessed, you know, two objects, one seemingly helping the other to recover. So to me, that's the only way I could justify this is if it's really two objects that we're talking about, two separate objects in the area around the same time. I, I, I mean, it almost has to be in my, I, I'm, I'm agreeing with you on that one because I mean, it, it it makes sense, though, especially if there are two different, like, designs of objects as well, like the, the more boxy one, but then there's also, of course, the more circular one. Um, interesting thing, since apparently Canada enjoys doing this, there was a commemorative, um, I would say, it's, it's coin? Yep. It's, yeah, it's but, a very weird shaped coin. Yeah. yeah, but it's a twenty dollar coin, which I'm like, okay, as as an American, that's that's weird to me. But they also did one for the, was it the Falcon Lake incident too? Yeah, it was very oddly designed. It looked like a guitar pick. Yeah. So, the interesting thing is, like, this has like two images on the front of it, to where it's when it's like, I guess because it, it says it glows in the dark, which once again weird that coins glow in the dark. Um, but the glow in the dark part looks like it's like a circular, like traditional UFO with four lights on the bottom sinking into the water. But then the other image is just four lights in a box shape sinking into the water. So mm -hmm. it could have just been 
Some people saw this at a certain angle that allowed them to see it that way. Some people did not. So, I yeah, it could it could definitely come up to vantage point. That's very true. And and on that note, um, U.S. Treasury Department, why do we not have some cool coins for like commemorating like UFO crashes or happenings or the Mothman? I like a Mothman commemorative coin. We're not cool. Man. Not We're enough. Not cool. The the Canadian mint has a sense of humor, whereas the American mint, we 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 still value pennies. We do still value pennies, which was actually the joke I was going to make. Oh man, I could get a spent. You know what? I stand corrected. I could have smashed a penny when I went by the Flatwoods Museum, and I just did not have fifty one cents on me that day. It's so weird that you're you're offering up the penny as a sacrifice and it still costs you 50 cents to crank that wheel. Hey, I'm, I'm doing it all myself here. Like, like that's my own power getting put into there. But yeah, I, that just dawned on me that I was like, wait, they did have a penny smasher at the, um, Blackwoods museum. So that one was on me there. Did it only have one design? Because growing up we had one in, uh, I think it was Lake Placid that had five. It had four designs. If I remember correctly. There we go. That's that's the way to do it right there. Uh, let me see if I can find what the designs are real quick. Yeah. Because that, like, I was standing right beside it. I stared at it and was like, man, I really wish I had change on me. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're almost better than collectible spoons. I, I never got the collectible spoon thing. No. I've seen them in many places because I live in a very touristy area of New York, and it's just, why? Why spoons? You're not going to use them. You, you should collect spoons? It seems so, like, I don't know, it's like collecting 8-tracks, I think. I Have I ever actually seen an 8-track? Well, years ago, probably, but... Oh, wait, got him. I think. It's from an area near there, but one of them is, one of them is the Mothman Flatwoods Monster, like the done up in the same way like the West Virginia flag is, where it's got the two people standing instead of uh, the Mothman the Flatwoods Monster. The other one's just the Flatwoods Monster, and then it's Elk River uh, Water Trail and the Sutton Dam are the four well, that, that that you can get there. Well, hot damn! No, you should you should totally have that one that's got Mothman and the Flatwoods Monster on. I'd be dope. I will definitely make sure that next time I go out there, I will, I will um have. You gotta to have that, that fifty-one cents. I, on I man. will have that fifty-one cents on me because <laughs> I do not want to miss. Actually, correction: I will have a dollar twenty, a dollar oh two because I want both of the Flatwoods ones. There you go. That's that's the way to do it. But, and then people are going to stare at you like, "Oh my god, what a complete tourist." <laughs> oh no, I I that, that 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 place is a tourist trap if I've ever seen one. Great great place. I would recommend still going there. Uh speaking of which though, this is something I found out just for just from clicking around and stuff. If you are interested in going to the Shag Harbor UFO Center, its mm-hmm. months of operation are from June 15th to September 30th with an annual festival held this year it was held from october 4th to the 6th well hot damn you know we, we should all attend it we should I, I just happened to see that i was like cool they have a festival that would be fun to go to because 
Um, I know that Flatwoods is starting to have try to have a festival there. I go to the Mothman Festival yearly, so make a trip up to Nova Scotia because. And trust me, um, from looking at the Google Earth images and kind of going over this, there seems to be nothing else around here. So on that note, do you think that this might have been some effort to create like a like a hotspot for like tourists, maybe? No, I don't think so. I think just because even after this, there are a number of other sightings off of not maybe not necessarily Shag Harbor, but off that eastern end of Nova Scotia, there's been quite a few sightings. So not necessarily, but if uh, Aurora, Texas, can do it, anybody can do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, like how how big is is Flatwoods? Is it big enough to host a, a festival like the Mothman Festival? Well, let me explain it this way: the fact that the Moth, I mean, the Flatwoods Museum has to be in Sutton, which is the next, which is like about five minutes down the road. I think should be a big hint there that no, it mm-hmm. is no. I mean, they they definitely could. It's something to where I can see them doing it there. It's just. I just happened to miss it, but the people there when I did visit said that it was something that they had a great turnout. The definition of a great turnout, in my opinion, and theirs might be two vastly different things. Great turnout to me is, oh, cool, there's like a couple of people. Great turnout to them is, well, Jim had somebody come from out of town who happened to look at it. I mean, he was just stuck trying to pass through, but, I mean, we got some people from out of town to come. Once again, I am sorry to West Virginia. That accent is too natural for me just to pop into. <laughs> and uh you know it it felt completely natural and i think that's a good way to go out here um <laughs> you know that's this, this is gonna do it for this this bonus episode so zanger man thank you for coming on and being a part of this craziness that is the shag harbor incident Tell the people more about Zang This and where they can find it and all that good stuff. Well, one, I appreciate you having me on. It is a great honor to be a part of, um, to be up in our strange skies and be something people can cite. But if you want to, if you want to report said sightings, the best place you can go for that is, of course, uh, go find Zang This on any major podcatchers. Uh, that's, of course, Z-E-N-G, this. Uh, and we talk about on there tons of different nerdy topics, pop culture, sci-fi. And you know what I think is definitely in that realm? The paranormal, because pop culture and paranormal go hand in hand. So we've definitely covered some of that stuff. Rob, you have been on, and it has been our pleasure to have you on. You um, discussed with us the uh, Rendlesham Forest incident, as well as I forced you to watch a terrible movie, documentary. That um, I think afterwards I did find out, I think the guy who produced it or directed it had something to do with the alien autopsy video. So... Uh, once again, a statement that surprises me none whatsoever, but you can, of course, uh, find more from Zingness on Twitter and all the social networks as well. I, I don't know if I'll ever forgive you for uh, making me watch that, but I, I suppose, and, and, you know... And the th- <laughs> thing we are talking about, so you don't go from here not knowing, is um, Aliens on the Moon. <laughs> I had to think about it before. I'm like, it's that documentary about aliens on the moon called aliens on the moon it's on the moon yeah um not to mention you could buy a book called there's somebody on the moon Mm. if you really want to dive deep into this and um don't want to look at a bunch of uh, blurry photos from the moon 
Yes. Um, no, but yeah, that, that, those are the best places to find Zingness. And like I said, we've covered plenty of stuff. So there's definitely episodes out there, I'm sure, that would tickle somebody's fancy. Oh, yeah. There's uh, how many episodes have you even done at this point? We're over 200 now. Um, over 170 numbered episodes, but there were several times I did not number episodes when we did the movie specials. And I just switched it to where they're all numbered because it makes it easier for me to organize. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good thing to do. I I recently started doing that in a you know consistent enough way, yes. so so that you know I could direct people to like, oh yeah, go check out this one. It's like number zero two. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, and it's funny because I actually have to have moments where I sit there. I'm like, did we cover that already? <laughs> <laughs> And, and trust uh, me, I, I've had people tell me and and point out to me when I have and have not covered stuff. So, really, yes, I have said something. I'm like, I don't know, I don't think we covered that before. And I'm the day the episode released, I got a message saying you covered it in this episode, and I was like, wow, I have a terrible memory for my own stuff. <laughs> but anyway, sir, uh, um, I, I've I've been honored to be a part of this. I've been honored to talk about a UFO incident that. Thanks to this research and thanks to coming on here, I now know more about that I didn't. I had always heard it as people saw something, it crashed, and the crash and everything like that is something I'm familiar with. But everything leading up to it is something I was not aware of. Yeah, and I think that's a lot of the a lot of the time how it's reported. But uh, I'm glad that you were on for this, and I'm glad that we could make it an educational experience. You for, know, <laughs> for not only myself but hopefully the listener as well. Yes, yes. So, um, a special thanks goes out to our lead researcher Rory for taking the lead on this. He researched this case about a year and a half ago, so uh, it's finally come to fruition. And uh, our theme song was composed by Big Cats, and our logo and web design is by the great Desdemona. And finally, don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or in the waters of Shag Harbor. In Grey We Trust. So before uh, we wrap things up here, I just wanted to give you guys a heads up about the first four episodes that we have coming back. And I teased this a little on social media, but for patrons, I thought I'd give you the inside scoop. So our first four episodes in January are uh, the Betty and Barney Hill incident. That may, in fact, be a two-part episode. We'll figure that out when we get there. The second one will be Lonnie Zamora and his sighting in Socorro, New Mexico. The third is a really fascinating abduction case called the Avalie abduction, and this occurred in England. And the fourth is a handful of sightings from Africa. And pro we're probably not going to talk about the aerial school landing just because it gets a lot of feature, but 
there are some other incidents that you may not know of and that uh, I'm going to bring to the table on this episode. So with that, see you all in January. Duvid Media.